We always thought alien life would come from the stars, but it came from deep beneath the Pacific. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Pacific Rim. In order to fight monsters, we created monsters of our own. Hosted by Stuart, Jerry, and Arnie. Remember, it's about compatibility. It's a dialogue, not a fight. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Today we are canceling the apocalypse! Today we're discussing Pacific Rim, starring Charlie Hunnam, Idris Elba, Ringo Kikuchi, Charlie Day, Ron Perlman, and directed by Guillermo del Toro. Guess who's back, you one-eyed bitch? It's Artie, co-host of Now Playing, and you owe me a kaiju brain. Stuart in L.A. Hey, guys, it's Jerry back to talk big robots. How do I get wrapped up in these things? Isn't this Transformers 4? I thought uh, it was. Oh, okay, that makes sense. This was like the Piranacons. You know, my Transformer buddies will get that. These are not robots. These are mechs. Guillermo is very big on making the distinction robots are automatons. They are self-contained. These are driven vehicles. These are giant Iron Man, right? I hadn't put that together. In my mind, it was robots fighting Godzilla, but I suppose I learned language here. This movie is heavy on jargon, and it is steeped in uh, science of its own making. That It sounds like you're up on, Arnie. I'm looking forward to you filling in on some of the gaps I might have missed. Yes, it's rare that for new movies that aren't franchises, these one-offs, we have a fan, but coming in, I think if we were to play roles, I would be that fan. I am probably the biggest Guillermo del Toro fan here. I won't take that from you, sure. I read the Pacific Rim comic. This was the original movie I've been looking forward to most this summer. So I'm very excited that we got to work it into the schedule. It was on the schedule and then off the schedule quite a while. And I kept going to Stuart. Stuart, hey, look, there's a spot. We can put Pacific Rim here. <laughs> yeah, I know. They kept moving red was part of the issues. Scheduling has been difficult. I'm just going to, as an aside, just put it out there. Hollywood, stop moving release dates. It drives me crazy. I don't know how many summer 2013 schedules I did. But yeah, this one was always on the borderline. It always looked like... We may not do it, but I never didn't want to see it. I knew whether we were doing a show about it or not, I was going to check it out. I am a longtime follower of Guillermo del Toro. I wouldn't say fan. There are many of his films that have left me cold, but every single one of them has a style and a beauty that is always worth checking out. Even if ultimately I don't rate the films highly, I always want to see what he's doing. And I do think I'm more of a fan of his Spanish language films, but... I've seen everything that he's done with the exception of Mimic. You know, for me, I, I don't know much about his work. I mean, I, I saw the Hellboy movies. They're fine. This movie in general, I hadn't even heard of it until Arnie had brought it up for now playing. And then I saw some commercials for it during the NBA finals. And that is my near zero exposure to what this movie was going to be prior to seeing it yesterday. Wow. Well, they were cagey with the trailers. I have to say that being the fan and trying to keep up with it, even I kind of came to it and knew it as Real Steel Fights Godzilla. I <laughs> couldn't have told you anything about the plot involving the characters. I knew there were big monsters and I knew there were big mechs. 
And that's kind of all I knew coming in. It was taking me back, though, to high school and early college, the computer games, Mech Warrior and Robotech and some of those games. I had friends far more into that stuff than I was, but I was friends with them and kind of on the outskirts and played some of those games. So it was a concept that excited me. But I can say when I sat down in that theater, I still didn't know what the story would be. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's the title, honestly. I think it's a terrible title. It doesn't say sci-fi. To this day, I still have to think about what this movie is called. It's always like the Guillermo del Toro one or the robot one, you know, the Godzilla wannabe. To me, Pacific Rim doesn't connotate anything, even though, of course, it's a good title when you think about what the plot is about, but it doesn't hook you into the idea that what you're going to watch is this spectacle that comes much closer to Avatar which also had sort of a secret web-based ad campaign that was maybe a little bit too coy. I think after watching the movie, I think we still you know, can summarize it just, just the way we did of what our thoughts were before seeing it. I mean, we built monsters to go fight monsters. That was the tagline that I've seen last few days and trying to kind of read up on the movie just a little bit to see what it's about. And everything went through my head, and we'll talk through it as we go. But you mentioned Robotech already, but golly, Voltron this. We were probably all in college when... Um, Power Rangers came on. I don't know much about Power Rangers, but it was just a live action Voltron. I mean, all these things go through my head and it feels familiar. It does, but this is the first time I feel like Hollywood's done this. this oh, is yeah, tried, yeah, yeah. Tried and true Japanese tradition, but the fact that it's being funded by Western money does make it kind of eccentric. And all those things you mentioned, I was aware of, but didn't watch. The one I watched was Battle of the Planets. You remember that one? Sure. Same stuff. Yeah. It was like, yeah, the five people, pink girl, blue guy. They're all like hawks or something, and their <laughs> metal ships came together to form a big robot. It's all the same thing. But as far as I know, this is the first time that they've done it as a big Hollywood movie if you don't count robot jocks. And I don't. And one of the things that all those franchises you mentioned, Jerry, or at least most of them have in common is they are un-American. They are foreign language dubbed into English for our audience. The Power Rangers notoriously filmed scenes with Americans and then used the foreign fight scenes. And Stuart, you said there's a lot of terminology here. Yeah, I think we should just let our listeners know two terms we're going to be using a hell of a lot in this podcast. The first is Jaeger, which is German for hunter. And in this case, it's the name of the giant mechs. And then there's Kaiju, which is monster in Japanese. How very axis of him. Yes, the Japanese and the Germans are getting together for a war. (laughs) You have to wonder in what kind of world that the entire world would just go, okay, we're going to use the Japanese word for monster to label a species. (laughs) Hey, whatever fits. I'll I'll go with whatever they're going to spell out here. I really appreciate that we're getting an original concept. I'm ready to learn. Sometimes when they're world building, it can be a little daunting, but I like this. I like the idea that after doing so many franchises, so many sequels, so many spinoffs of toys and arcade games and comic books, we're getting a fresh original concept here. I mean, it might be inspired by all of this Japanese manga, but it is indeed coming from Del Toro's head, along with a co-screenwriter that wrote that Clash of the Titans remake. I'll forgive him for that. But these two are hatching an original concept with an enormous budget. I always think that should be celebrated. We don't get enough giant original sci-fi movies. So that has me hooked. And that writer is Travis Beecham. And actually, you've got a little bit backwards. I know it's 
comment that we'd give Del Toro complete credit for this, but this is Beecham's baby. Beecham had the entire concept. He's been working on it since 2008. He brought Del Toro in a little bit later after a studio picked it up. They kind of merged together there. Guillermo gave some rewrites. Beecham did write a prequel comic book that Guillermo also went in and rewrote that I'll be talking about a little bit as we go through. I, I am aware of that. Del Toro's had actually a lot of trouble getting a project going. I don't think he has actually made a movie in five years. I think Hellboy 2 was the last time he put a film out, which is crazy because he's an in-demand director, but projects get falling through. You know, he was supposed to redo Hobbit. He was supposed to do a Lovecraft movie that I so wish he still would have the ability to do. Maybe he was going to make Hellboy 3. All of those projects came and went, and I don't know when he finally decided that this was his project, but I do recognize, yes, the initiation of this project comes from the original writer, and that he's just putting his stamp on it and making it a Guillermo del Toro movie. Well, this is actually kind of like the rebound girlfriend for Guillermo, because (laughs) it was on a Friday that At the Mountains of Madness went to shit, and so on Monday he signed for this. Yeah, I so want that movie. Uh, But anyway, that's a different podcast. This one, I want to see a Guillermo movie, but not necessarily this one. I'd be happy with anything that he was going to make. But again, I just want to celebrate. I'm glad it's original. It's an auteur coming in with fresh inspiration, painting an entire new world for us. I think that's great. So, Arnie, there is nothing that this movie is based off of. There is no previous comic book or previous work. All these comics were made as movie tie-ins. Correct. This is an entirely unoriginal concept. (laughs) And I say that because there's the (laughs) placard at the end where this movie is dedicated to Ray Harryhausen and Ishiro Honda. I mean, what this is, is Guillermo del Toro taking the anime he watched in his youth and the Godzilla movies and all the Ray Harryhausen stop motion and wanting to tell that kind of story, but doing so in a completely new way, creating a totally new mythology, trying to create a totally new look that was inspired by the others, but while not ripping it off or being too direct of an homage or a plagiarism. And so I say unoriginal because giant monsters attacking cities, especially Hong Kong and Tokyo, we've seen it, but we've never seen this universe. We've never seen anything that we see here in Pacific Rim per se. Right. And I want to put it out there. Godzilla fan. Longtime Godzilla fan. Now, admittedly, mostly in childhood. Haven't gone back and really watched those movies since then. Maybe we'll have a reason to one day, but it's not on the calendar right now. I just, like Del Toro, have a lot of affection for that genre. And my go-to reference here is I'm focusing on the lizards, not so much the mechs. But yeah, I'd love to see a really sophisticated, cool new take on those movies I adored as a kid. And I think it would be fun for new generations to experience it as well. But I'm wondering, I'm looking at this tracking, I'm looking at the box office. I think they have an upward hill battle here. I think that they're having real trouble finding that audience to go see this movie. The trouble with doing something original is when people haven't heard of it, they're less likely to shovel out money for it. Yeah, the first part of a series is often the least grossing. The parts two and three, people know what they're getting and are more excited to go back. But that kind of leads to me. I saw this. Again, I was excited. Opening night, local premiere, 7 p.m. I always love that because that means I don't have to be swilling coffee the next morning at work. Mostly empty theater, but it was almost a picture of diversity. You had an 8-year-old and an 80-year-old, and we had just about every ethnicity imaginable in there. But I did see it in 3D, not IMAX 3D, but 3D. 
there's a lot of choices to see it in LA. I went to the theater that was within walking distance. They had three showings. The first two sold out. I got into the third one. It was a real D screening. So I've seen the movie in 3D. It was not heavily attended. Everyone was fit into those first two. And it was really the stragglers. I would say maybe a third full for my screening. But all guys all around my age, I would say 25 to 45 was the audience. If there were women there, they were there with the guys. Such as my wife. We saw it Thursday night. I didn't quite get a 7 p.m., although I really tried. But I ended up seeing it at like 10 p.m., real 3D. I was actually wanting to see this in 2D. That was my preference because I figured you guys probably seeing the 3D. So I was hoping to do the 2D. It's showing was like a 1240, 12.45. And <laughs> I thought it was worth the extra 40 minutes to get home. I still didn't get home till about one o'clock. This is a fairly long movie. And it is. So I guess we all did the uh, post-convert experience. Well, I was happy to find out that this isn't entirely post-conversion because when I was watching it in 3D, I did think some scenes look good and I'll talk about them as we go through. But about a half an hour of this film is pure 3D. But it's not pure 3D like Avatar 3D, it's pure 3D like Toy Story 3, because every single piece of it was CG created, <laughs> but it was CG created in 3D with a stereo vision type of thing. So with a lot of the robot scenes, uh, there's a lot of CGI in this. And when there's an all CG creation, it is native 3D. When it's people being filmed, then it was a post-conversion scene. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to put it out there right now. Regardless of how I think of the movie, see it in 3D. I actually love the 3D. This is probably the best 3D experience I've had in a theater since Avatar. I thought it really worked for creating a world on Pandora. I think it really works for creating the world Guillermo has here. I think that this movie is predominantly about awe and inspiration and creating vast spaces I think the 3D is good, and I think it's effective. I think most of the scenes pop in 3D. I don't resent seeing it in this format at all, where normally I usually am like, well, this is a ripoff. I'm not with you on that, and I guess I couldn't say 100% for sure unless I've seen it both ways. Like I have Iron Man, Captain America, Thor. You know, I see it 3D, I see it 2D, and I'm like, eh. You know, I really wasted my money seeing the 3D because the 2D's fine. I felt like the 3D, especially in the scenes like you're talking about where you wanted to see the massive environment around you, I don't think you know you can really tell what's going on. I'm sure we'll get into the details about the fight scene specifically, but I really wish I could have seen it in 2D, especially now just to make the comparison. And I'll split the difference. I'll say that I'll side just slightly with Stuart, see it in 3D, but that's because of the handful of scenes where it really does pop. I think for the majority of the movie, the 3D is pretty lost, but it's the second best 3D movie I've seen this year as far as just the depth and visuals. Sadly, Texas Chainsaw is still the number one spot. The what? film actually what? filmed in 3D. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going back to that. You can go listen to that show, folks, if you want to hear what I have to say about that. But I'm not saying it's a better movie. I'm just saying it was actually filmed in 3D and it showed. Okay, well, fair enough. All right, well, then let's get to it, Arnie. Give us the plot. We'll get into the film. It's around the year 2030 and the Earth is under siege. Under the Pacific Ocean, a dimensional portal has opened allowing giant monsters, nicknamed Kaiju, to come to our planet and attack our cities. Our conventional military forces didn't stop the Kaiju, so to fight back, all of the nations of the world came together and built giant metal suits called Jaegers. 
The Jaegers are controlled by a neural link with its pilots, but the Jaegers are so large, no one pilot could do the job. It takes two pilots neurally linked to control a Jaeger. In this link, called the Drift, the pilots completely access each other's thoughts and memories, but can act like two halves of a brain to operate the machine. The Jaegers kept the kaiju at bay for 15 years, but then the kaiju evolved. They became stronger and more ready to take on the Jaegers. Eventually, the Jaeger program is discontinued in favor of building a giant wall to keep the kaiju in the Pacific. Marshall Stacker Pentecost, played by Idris Elba, is the head of the Jaeger program and sees the folly of the wall, so he finds private funding to continue the Jaeger program. Pentecost's final plan is to bomb the dimensional portal in the Pacific, hopefully closing it. To do that, he re-recruits pilot Rally Beckett. Beckett had quit the Jaeger program after his co-pilot and brother was killed fighting a kaiju five years earlier, but he comes back and teams with Pentecost's adoptive daughter Mako Mori to go back into battle. However, while they plan their attack, the kaiju keep coming, and the Jaegers get whittled down as casualties mount from fighting off the kaiju. Meanwhile, Dr. Newton Geisler has learned he can drift with a kaiju brain and discovers the kaiju are not just animals in search of food, but scouts for an invading alien army that plans to kill all humans and colonize Earth. Teaming with frenemy scientist Gottlieb to drift with a brain, they discover the dimensional portal is built to only transport kaiju, and Pentecost's plan to bomb the portal will not work unless they ride a kaiju through. In the final battle, Pentecost must sacrifice himself in a Jaeger while Beckett and Mako succeed in riding the largest kaiju we've ever seen through the portal. They ignite their Jaeger's nuclear core and jettison to safety as the nuke explodes, closing the portal and saving the human race. There's a lot more detail to it. We're gonna go through it. There's just a hell of a lot of backstory to this. I mean, when we start, we get a five-minute monologue narrated by Rally Backett, giving us the story of how the kaiju came to Earth and the attacks. If you've seen the most prominent theatrical trailer, you've heard much of this monologue about how the first attack was in San Francisco and second attack in Manila six months later. Yeah, it was a surprise that they started with the second episode. I mean, let's face it. They skip a movie here. They're starting with Empire Strikes Back. They're starting with the idea that these lizards have been defeated and are now coming back stronger. They've evolved and the humans are losing now. They're starting with the second one in a trilogy rather than telling us the story of how this all happened and introducing our main character as he first learns about the threat. I think that's weird. And I think it does make for an exposition-heavy opening. But I also think, hey, Empire is the best Star Wars movie. All right, give us your best show. I'm down with that. But you know what I appreciate about all that, though? The movie knows it's dumb. It's got a ridiculous premise. It just tells you what the ridiculous premise is and then just lets you get to it. I wouldn't have enjoyed that theoretical first movie that you discussed. It was kind of like the Rocky movies, you know. Every time you watch the second or third or fourth Rocky movie, you, the first five minutes was the end of the previous one. You know, you get that exposition, then you get that fight where Beckett loses his brother, and then you get Pacific Rim. And I, and I looked at my wife's like, holy crap, we're just now getting the title card for this movie. I felt like we were watching the last seven minutes of the previous movie to remind us what this one was going to be about. Just to clarify, it was 15 minutes. 15 well, minutes into the movie is <laughs> when the title card comes up. Yeah, I had thought wow. we, they weren't going to give us one or that I had already seen it. I wasn't expecting it. By the time they actually did it, I was stunned that we're still just getting started. 
but it isn't how I would want the information sent to me. It is exposition heavy. It is someone in voiceover going blah, 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 and telling me code names and jargon. And it feels like work for a movie as long as this. It's disappointing that they weren't able to more organically finesse the plot in a way that didn't feel like it was just a dump in your lap. But once they dump it, I accept the world. I process that, yes, this is going to be dumb fun, and I'm going to try and meet it at this level. I'm going to try and sync up like these main characters do with the movie being given to me, and let's see what they do with it. And as I mentioned, I read the comic that is kind of a prequel, kind of a sequel. It's a reporter after this movie, interviewing people about events long before this movie. So I already had some of this backstory. This comic... I was going to do a Books and Nachos, but I'm going to be honest with the listeners. It's not very good because there's not a story there. All it is is more information dump. You get a story that talks about the scientist who created the Jaegers and what Pentecost's role was in it and how he really championed the Jaeger program when there were many different programs coming together trying to figure out how to fight the kaiju. And then you get to see the Beckett brothers go on a mission together and actually get in a fight because one's dating a girl the other one likes and it causes them not to be able to drift together. So you get to see a little bit more of those brothers together, something I think desperately need going into this. But the comic itself, it's just more information dump. It's really short. It doesn't add a whole lot. But I had some backstory going into this. It was written by the same writer. And so what confused me is in the comic, they say during that attack on San Francisco, the only way they were able to stop the kaiju. They tried planes. They tried tanks. The only thing that would stop it is actually nuking San Francisco. (laughs) I was wondering, they're very coy, and it's a brilliant opening. I mean, just as far as visual spectacle, watching this creature rip through the Golden Gate Bridge, I'm like, wow, this is where the 3D is really popping, the fog, all of this. As far as spectacle goes, this thing is grabbing me by the eyeballs and not letting go. I think it's great. But yeah, there's a lot of omission in the way that they're jumping over here. I'm like, okay, so this thing killed three cities before it was put down. What stopped it? What makes the world go, you know what we need? Giant robots. I mean, that would have been my first theory on how to put these down. It was a nuke then that put the first kaiju down. Yeah, they do say tens of thousands of lives were lost. I would think, given how important nukes are to this plot, seeing a mushroom cloud in the first act would have really set us up for the third act. Yeah. But they don't go there for whatever reason. It's never really explained how they stopped it. Well, the opening dialogue there actually did make the statement that with enough tanks and planes, we eventually put it down. So they did actually just make it seem like that they just threw everything at it, maybe quite literally everything they could have thrown at it, and they took down the one monster. I I gathered that, hey, if we had an entire worldwide army for each monster, we'd be fine, but we don't, so that we went and, and built these mechs. I mean, I didn't get the single shred that there was anything nuclear about the first attack. No, I didn't get it from the movie either. I only got it from the comic. I heard what you heard, Jerry. The key being that the comic's trying to explain the leap of logic. Why wouldn't we go to long-range things? Why would we go to rock'em, sock'em robots as the (laughs) best way to fight off Godzilla? 
Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, I'd go down a very long list, including everyone taking a cyanide pill before I would be like, let's build giant robots and have people sync up their brains. It will kill them if they do it. They end up figuring out that they need two pilots, like two lobes of the brain. They need two people to pilot these things. It's a whole movie. Again, I say, I feel like A New Hope was totally jettisoned. It was crushed up and sprinkled here in the first 15 minutes because they knew that this was the better story. They knew that the best part of the trilogy would be everything that happens after. At least that's what they're hoping for, I think. But I feel like they could have had a whole movie here. They did. It was the comic. Yeah. And, it, and you're right. It's a, this is a much better story than the comic. Okay. Well, fair enough. But I do feel like by crushing it up and making it this abbreviated monologue voiceover, it's very distancing. I'm hooked in because it's a visual spectacle, but these characters, yes, this main character are Luke, Raleigh Beckett, and his brother. It's supposed to be a painful moment that we see these cocky brothers who are piloting one of these big robots. They're surprised when they're going out on an Alaskan mission and the monster proves to know how they work and defeats them. Yeah, I honestly couldn't tell these two brothers apart. I mean, they hired actors who actually look somewhat similar and neither of whom I actually recognize. Looking at IMDb, I have seen both in other things. TV. That's where I recognize everyone in this movie is that Charlie Hunnam is on Sons of Anarchy and the guy playing his brother is on Homeland, both of which I've watched on and off. So I knew who they were, but I agree. Nobody here is really a star. I think the impulse here was, why waste money on a cast when we can throw it up on screen in visual effects? And they certainly have done this. This movie looks incredible. I wouldn't have wanted them to take any shortcuts with the visual stature of it. But yeah, these aren't stars here. And I think that might be another challenge to marketing this movie is that who are these folks? Who is the hero here? Well, true enough, this was a movie where I think the original budget was something like $265 million, <laughs> and the studio said no. They got it down to $215 million for the studio to do it. <laughs> a bargain. $220, $260, it's all the same. <laughs> when you're in that deep a hole, yeah, I guess so. But one of the things that changed was Pentecost was at one point going to be Tom Cruise. Now it's the much more affordable and <laughs> ubiquitous Idris Elba. Oh, wow. Oh, he was going to be the Jägermeister. That's what I kept calling him. <laughs> the guy in charge of the whole Jäger program ends up being Idris Elba, an actor who I admired on TV. Again, with the TV. The Wire, Stringer Bell. Loved that show. Loved him in it. I'm starting to realize that movies are not giving him the same quality parts. You know, I've seen him now in a couple of these now playing shows we've done. He was the bodyguard or the doorman in Thor or whatever you want to call him. I call him Heimdall. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> well, he, whatever. You know, he didn't do much other than stand at a gate with a sword. Well, I mean, come on. I think we almost need to call this Idris Elba's now playing with Ghost Rider, Prometheus, Thor. Next week, we're talking about the losers. I feel like Idris Elba's the star of our show anymore. I wish that were the case. I just feel like when I see him in movies, he leaves me cold. Prometheus, that accent, all of it. I've never seen him with a part on the screen that was worthy of the talent he demonstrated on that HBO show. And yeah, but again, another refugee from TV that has proven his worth, but has yet to be a big movie star yet. 
But yeah, this opening, I agree with you, Stuart. Visually spectacular, huge information dump, really hard to take it all in, especially when I knew I had to do a plot summary on it. That basically I could have done an entire movie's plot summary and what they do right there. But I'm going with this world. And then when the big Jaeger comes out piloted by the Beckett's, it's Gypsy Danger. What the hell does Gypsy Danger mean? <laughs> or is it that they're going to pickpocket? <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's a lot of cool slang and jargon. Almost all the names here, they kind of annoy me, really. They're just like someone had a spin the dial thing. You know, there was some kind of randomness. Throw it at the dartboard where they had all these cool verbs and adjectives, and then they just randomly put them together. I feel like... There's a lot of uh, clunky naming in this movie. And yeah, I don't understand what a gypsy danger is. But then again, what's a Millennium Falcon? I, I don't know. I feel <laughs> like they're trying to build a world here. They're trying to create a new language and they're trying to hook us in in a way like Star Wars or Avatar, where we're just we're learning everything and we're soaking it all up that all details here matter. But when Gypsy Danger shows up, that score kicks in. And I knew that score from the trailers. I knew that score because I got the soundtrack. I mean, this is a score by Raman Jwadi. I totally butchered that name, I'm sure. But I'm a fan of his, even if I can't pronounce his name. He did Iron Man. If I wasn't thinking giant Iron Man before, his score kicks in. It reminds me a lot of the first Iron Man score, which is my favorite. I wish they'd gotten him back for the sequels. And it's a tune that I literally was humming for hours after I left the theater. Yeah, agreed. It's good music. It's anthemic, which is what you want. They're trying to hook us. Sometimes they do mood music. You know, I'm thinking about those Nolan Batman where there was almost an anti-theme. No, here they really want to rouse you. There's a lot of trumpet music to get the pulse quickening. I mean, this movie's pretty simple. At the end of the day, for all the different names and things we're supposed to learn, it's just a boxing match, right? It's all about adrenaline, and everything is here just to juice you up and get you high. Yeah, I mean, they may as well have done the real steel thing where they just put round one on the screen and round two on the screen and things like that. But you're right, it's just a setup for the next fight. Right. And the music is more perfect for that. I mean, it's almost as good. God knows nothing could be as good as Bill Conti with the Rocky thing going to fly now, but it's close. I mean, it's on a higher plane with that. It definitely had that kind of Olympic feel to it. Yeah. It felt like a march. And whenever Gypsy Danger came on, the same refrain started to play. The Kaiju had their refrain. I actually think there may be a Again, cheaped out, and he only did a half an hour of music, and they played it four times in the movie in different cuts. But yeah, you got that theme. You start off with this amazing kaiju battle off Alaska where the Beckets are ordered to defend the coast, but there's 10 people out there on a fishing boat, so they're going to go out there and try to save the fishermen too, setting them up as cowboys, but good guys who want to save lives. Right. They're defying orders. It should be said they're rebels that Idris Elba tells them, go out there and just stop the monster from coming to Alaska. Right. That's the whole point. Save the population of two million. If there's a boat out there at sea, well, best of luck to it. But it's only 10 people. Think about the two million. Don't think about the 10. Well, these guys are young and puckish. And I wonder whether they're doing it to save lives so much as just because they feel like they can save everybody, that there's an arrogance to the way that they're approaching the problem here. that uh, and, and indeed, the monster hasn't shown its face yet, so why not go out there and grab the boat while you got a free second? I mean, clearly they go in there thinking, hey, why can't I do both? I'll probably get the monster faster anyway. And it, you know, it sets up a little bit about who these brothers are. 
Yeah, they definitely have that arrogance thing going. They say that the Jaeger pilots are rock stars. I mean, at this point in the history, and keep in mind, this single battle is five years before the bulk of the movie. We're <laughs> still in the prologue, folks. <laughs> yeah, seven minutes into the movie and seven years into the war is where we're at here with Alaska 2020. And they said that the Jaegers are overconfident, that the kaiju have been defeated so handily by Jaegers when they come up. It's like calling it an exterminator. Kids play with kaiju toys. And the Jaeger pilots, they're just on talk shows and have groupies. So I do think that arrogance played a big part in it. But by the same token, it's arrogance in that we'll be bigger heroes if we also save 10 more lives. Yes, I guess you can focus on that. It just wasn't the way I took the scene to be. To me, this was a scene in which cocky people are humbled because it's going to go badly. They think that they're going to beat this lizard very quickly. Of course, it's playing possum. It knows that they live in the head. It goes, it rips the brother out there, and it kills him. And this is supposed to be a big emotional moment, but because I haven't spent any time with these folks at all, literally, we've had a moment of them waking up and running around, but other than those fleet seconds of footage, it's not very impactful to watch this character be killed here, and it should be pivotal, because it's the trauma that's going to dodge our main character for the rest of the film. I thought what was interesting about them is that they've made the heroes video gamers, right? That's what they really are. They claim that they're not jocks. They're not athletes. They're not here because they can physically do incredible things, although they're clearly in shape. They're video gamers. They can play the joystick, right? Their mind links up with their actions in a way that creates what the movie will term drift. Arnie, can you speak to that? Does the comic book elaborate on this more than the movie does? It does to quite a degree, but I don't know that it adds anything of value. It talks more about how you share thoughts and whatever one person's thinking of the other can see and how you can have these entire mental conversations. You're basically of one mind when you're in the drift. And they talk about how it was created and how single pilots couldn't do it. You would get a clip of that in this huge montage in the opening of a person yeah. with their bloody nose from Overload. We actually get that all seen in the comics. Do they always have to be family members? Because later we'll see a father and son team, and then this guy will partner up with someone that he has a crush on. Do you have to have some kind of emotional connection to the other person in order to pilot with them? There has to be a complete trust and comfort because they're in your head, but it does not have to be a relation. We get to see Pentecost's pilot, and she was of no relation to him in any way. I think that it creates a close bond if you don't already have one. You have to, again, be compatible, but yeah, I mean, at some point a little later into this movie, we see them trying to find a co-pilot for Raleigh, and it's not like they had to dig up his long-lost biological brother they had tryouts right yeah it was basically a karate match or something kendo fights yeah because but... stick fighting really helps you pilot giant <laughs> robots <laughs> well and, and you know that i took it when he was fighting with moray that it was like okay who can actually come to the best draw who can actually be so one for one that you're demonstrating that they're so similar in the way they think but right. i found the drifting odd because the way it's explained is, is that hey they've got to be like one mind 
left brain, right brain, you know, the different hemispheres, the way they described it. But then when they're actually in motion, even all the way from the very first battle with the Beckett brothers, they're acting very independent, talking to each other, understand what's going on. I kind of expected those two to actually think and move like one person, like for that time being that they're not really independent people. So I thought it was a little back and forth. Well, they're sharing a brain except for when they're not. They're seeing each other's memories except for when they're thinking about their own thing. It just, it, it never clicked with me, but at the same time, I didn't want the movie to go into more of what it was because it would just been more exposition and techno babble. The confusion for me is that they seem to need people to emulate the right side and left side of the brain, but it's not like the two different lobes control each half of your body. I mean, it's not like you need compatible people to work together. You literally need people that are so similar that they're going to make the same movements at the same time so that they're synchronicity, right? Yeah, I mean, they move together like dancers, but I'll say coming into this, from the trailer and the comic, I thought this would be a lot more of the plot, this drifting, because... You're in someone's head, right? What fertile storytelling ground is here? You're keeping a secret from me, and I'm going to reveal it. Or Mm -hmm. you're you're in love with me? Oh, my God. And the distractions and the betrayals and just the fact of letting someone completely into your brain is such, even for brothers, even for spouses, even for fathers and sons, which is what we have a lot of here, it is so deeply intimate. That I thought coming in, this would be the human story. Because you have to have a human story in the midst of this monster battle. It is so glossed over that I feel there is a huge ripe spot here for perhaps the direct-to-DVD animated sequel. (laughs) Yeah, good luck trying to get another one financed. But we don't know. Maybe over time this thing will gross what it needs to to be successful. But regardless of that, I like what you're thinking, Arnie. What we see is a montage of their past, that these brothers, literally their childhood becomes one tracking shot in which we see them get into trouble and have dinner together and remember their parents and all of that in this kind of washed out blue color. And that's all it really is, which made me think that, okay, maybe you just need to be biologically similar or have a long history with each other in order to be successful co-pilots together. It is underdeveloped here. And that's too bad because... This is not the first time we've kind of seen this kind of sync up. I mentioned Avatar before. A big part of that story was how it was about a human being with damaged legs learning to walk again by syncing up with a creature of a different species. I mean, Inception was about linking up into dreams. I do feel like it's a popular science fiction conceit we've seen in the last few years, and this is probably the least ambitious. I'll say right now, I'm going to have a common theme as we go through this story, what little of it there is to go through. Mm. I found out after seeing the movie that Guillermo cut an hour from this movie, and it was all character development stuff. And you feel it here. You do. I can believe it. And I don't know because I'm not an editor and I didn't see the raw footage, but the movie, I will say, suffers because this is a movie about lizards and robots. It is not a movie about characters syncing up with their memories and each other. You know, Arnie, it's weird that there's an extra hour out there because... I want to say they cut an hour. They didn't say a footage. Maybe they cut 30 pages, which is a half hour. I know there's at least a half hour of footage. But Guillermo said there was an hour more of movie that was cut. Well, what's interesting is that there's at least a half hour of this plot with 
auditioning Beckett's new partner that I think really dragged the movie down. And, you know, it's so important we find the right match and the right match. And we know Moray's probably even on paper and even her skills is the right match. But, oh, I can't let her in. I can't let her in. Okay, I'll let her in. But then you get Pentecost just jumps into a mech with that one Australian son. Eh, it's okay. We're, we're compatible enough. Well, that's because Pentecost a- drops this very weird line that I, again, wish was explained. And maybe it was in some of the cutscenes. Because while walking to that ship, Pentecost says, I carry nothing with me into the drift. No memories, no fear, no rank. How the hell do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) I did catch it. I was like, that's a neat trick. You should have taught your pilots that, especially Mm -hmm. Moray. I'm like, there's a secret there right there. Is he a clone? Why does he have no memories? (laughs) The man with no past, literally. Yeah, that would be quite a thing. Again, yes, this would be the stuff that I would really focus on in this world, that it becomes so much about the fighting is predictable and maybe even the right commercial choice, but it makes it a far less interesting piece of science fiction. The ideas are underserved in this movie. If you saw the trailer and thought that you got a hint of what this movie is about, I'm here to tell you, you've actually seen it all. You haven't seen every scene, but you've seen all that it wants to give you. This movie is not about ideas. It is about the action. Yeah, the character development in this movie is poor. I really should like Raleigh. I want so badly to like Raleigh. I like his universe. I like the fact that he had a trauma. It gives me a little bit of an in. But the way Charlie Hunnam is playing him and the dialogue I get, every line of dialogue feels like a trailer for Field of Dreams or something. You know, it just doesn't have depth to it. It's just words. And so I want an in here. I'm not getting one. And so it's a little disheartening when I find myself really engaged with two minor characters, two crazy scientists who are also in this base. Yeah, the C-3PO, R2-D2 is how I think of them. They're these nattering characters that are working out the same problem, and they have some respect for each other, but they spend most of the time bickering about how to go about solving the kaiju problem. One is a mathematician. He has some cool line about saying that numbers are the signature of God. He's got it all worked out on a blackboard about how many are coming, that he predicts a a doomsday in which an exponential number of these beasts are going to be popping out, and they're really going to be screwed. If they thought things were bad, they're about to get much worse. The other guy is sort of a fanboy. He's got tats on his arms, and he's really hoping one day that we can cohabitate with these lizards and not kill them. He thinks they're cool. He's more of a biologist, and his whole thing is about understanding the drift and understanding how we might communicate with these alien species. And I don't know the actor who played Gottlieb, but the one who's playing Newton Geyser, Newt, is Charlie Day. It's always sunny in Philadelphia and horrible bosses. This guy just has charisma that I'm not getting from the people around him. And he's the kaiju lover. They call him a kaiju groupie. He's got green sleeves of kaiju tattoos. I really enjoyed the energy that he brought to the scenes. I mean, just you really believe that his character was going to go figure this out. He was going to go drift with an alien brain or 
fragment of it. And I really liked the way he brought the energy. I mean, I think him and Ron Perlman, I think, were the two that chewed up the scenes that they were in the most. Yeah, it's more fun to play these kinds of parts anyway. I mean, it should be said, being the hero in these kinds of fantasies means that you usually have to follow a more traditional growth arc. I think that Charlie Hunnam has the harder road to hoe because he has to be a romantic lead. He has to be the stud. He has to be the cool guy. He can't be funny. I wonder if that's the right choice. I mean, I did say already, these are video gamers. Why not make them more like video gamers? Maybe instead of having perfect six-pack abs and looking model pretty, what if these people were more like overweight or just, you know, the average person in the street that just, yeah, they're not athletes. They're just people that know how to sync up and do movements that coincide with a mechanical interface. I mean, I guess they're playing Wii. This is a physical activity, so you do have to be somewhat fit. But I'm wondering if the choice to make them ninjas was the right one. Once these characters come in, I realize what I really would have liked to have seen. A pairing of brains and brawn. Yeah. Where there was a scientist and a jock on every one of these. Because as this movie goes on, we're going to find out Newt is our hero. And he is the scientist who tries to go through it. You've been making a lot of Star Wars references, but what I came up with as a parallel is kind of Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith in Independence Day, where Jeff Goldblum's the one who's going to figure out what it takes to kill the aliens, but you need Will Smith to pilot the ship. And there's a lot of Independence Day parallels in this movie, too. And so I saw this, and I really wish that these two characters, because I'll say these two are our lead, is Newton Raleigh. And I wish their stories had intersected because they go on in parallel, but it feels like I'm channel flipping between two movie stations. You are, and you're right. Charlie Day's movie is better than Charlie Hunnam's movie. It's too bad because, yeah, if they were in the same mech together, that's good collaboration. My comparative was still Star Wars here. Hunnam is playing Luke and Charlie Day is playing a less cool version of Solo. See, and you just called him C-3PO. You're confusing me now. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, but yes, once he emerges as a star, because initially they're just scientists, they're just people to dump information, and it's the robots, right? I mean, the robots are the heroes here, and that these human characters are just here to dispense why the robots are doing what they're doing, and so it is a surprise to watch the character evolve, to see that Charlie Day actually does go on his own individual adventure. I wasn't expecting that, and it does seem to happen late into the movie. But they did such a poor job, I thought. It was so awkward the way they brought the two shows on two different channels back together. He just runs into the command center and say, hey, stop, stop, I figured it out. And they just radio it to him. I mean, what you guys are saying, I think, is dead on. I mean, those could have tied in much better. It was almost like an afterthought. It was as if it was a filming, hey, we've got to do a pickup scene and do some ADR work with the uh, communications over the radio to bring these two stories back together. Because the whole concept of guys are doing the brain link and then suddenly that causes the other aliens to want to seek him out, which I don't know how that works. Mm-hmm. But they're coming after Geyser for some reason. We don't know why. They never come back after him again. I don't know why he's important. We don't even know that that's what they were doing. That is well, no. a theory. It's probable as they tongue him, but <laughs> it, it's the only thing we're given. Therefore, it must be the truth. I mean, in the absence of any other explanation, I have to believe that because he's drifting with the creatures, the first human being to actually mind meld with them, that makes him a threat and that the creatures decide that he must die so that they can conceal their inner thinking and their evil plot. 
Although their plot is kind of obvious. They're here to kill us. I mean, I do like it. What we do find out is, I think this is kind of cute. They're dinosaurs. The one thing that he really contributes by doing all this mind melding is that these are the original dinosaurs that have come back from extinction, smarter and better and ready to take us down. Thank you for terraforming the planet so that we can now breathe it. We will now eat you. Goodbye. I think that's fun. I mean, that's always been a thing with Godzilla or the Loch Ness monsters. We just presume there's some missing link that was trapped beneath the earth and uh, something happens and atomic blast or, you know, whatever earthquake and they're free and it's a prehistoric creature back in modern day. I like that. I think that keeping that storyline alive here was the right choice here. It's a fun backstory. What I think is really, I guess the word is revolutionary about this as far as being a Hollywood movie is any time that I've seen characters in a clash between machine and organic life, we're always to understand that the natural life is the heroic one, right? That machines are always the bad thing. I mean, look at Avatar. We sync up with another species. It was all about so that we could learn about another natural indigenous culture. The enemy were the soldiers in their big metal suits. That's the bad guy. This is the reverse. We're not syncing up with Godzilla here. We're syncing up with Mecha Godzilla. That's weird to me. I don't think that we typically see in Western movies machines and robots portrayed as the hero. They're the Terminator. I think that's a big thing that's different between like Japanese science fiction and American science fiction is that the Japanese are much more comfortable seeing technology as a good. Western, we always like to characterize it as our downfall. Well, I mean, you know, even the Michael Bay Transformer movies showed both. I mean, there were robots, both good and bad. Optimus Prime was compassionate towards all sentient life, willing to sacrifice himself for it. Megatron was obviously just going to destroy everything in his path. Even by the time we got to Dark of the Moon, though, you had humans who were willing to sell out their plant you know, to the Decepticons. So you actually then at that point had some on either side. That was always a confusion of Transformers for me. I never said a bad word about the way Bay staged the action. I always thought from a visual standpoint, it was very impressive to watch robot upon robot. But because it was robot against robot, it was really hard to know who was fighting who and who was the good guy, who was the bad. Here it's very clear. Anything that looks like a lizard, bad guy. Anything that's in metal, that's the good guy. I think they can clear up that confusion, but it's flipped. Because my expectation would be that, you know, natural life is always what gets championed. Robots are soulless, right? They're the very symbol of being dehumanized. And the fact that humans are syncing up with it, I don't know, are we ready for that? I mean, it's kind of true. I mean, think about it. I'm here talking on a headset to you in different places via computer. I mean, people use their iPhones. I mean, we are cyborgs. But are we ready to acknowledge that human beings really love their robot? It's the thing that I think is most bold about Pacific Rim is that it's here to champion machines over living matter. But what's funny to me is I don't consider myself an anime fan or manga fan, but... When I'm watching this, all of that stuff I have seen, like the Mech Warrior, especially Voltron, which I watched religiously as a kid, and I, I don't think of it as anime, but it is. That's what it is. It's revolutionary to, like you say, a movie funded by an American studio. And that's why I wonder if it's having trouble, at least pre-release news, was that it wasn't going to do very well in the box office domestically. But I see this movie blowing up in Japan and China. Yes. 
Yeah, agreed. They'll have no trouble making uh, that money. Yeah, this is a movie made for them. This is a movie that is their mythology and fits in their culture. So are Americans ready? We'll find out. But I had no problem going with it. You talked about the action, though, and you said you never complained about Bay's staging of the action. I did, and I pray to God before we go back into Cybertron next year that Michael Bay sees this movie and goes, that's how you do it. That's how you film big things fighting and make it look good. You don't do it with super close-ups where they can't tell what they're seeing. Wide <laughs> shots. Why didn't I think of it before? I hope he has that eureka moment and rushes over to ILM and goes, make it wide. Because, yeah, here I could really tell what was going on. And when the kaiju are fighting the Jaegers, oh my God, is it fun to watch. It's incredible. It is the movie that is really the referendum on Avatar. I feel like we've been waiting a long time to see the next film that was going to make a 3D spectacle with an original concept where we have this kind of epic scale here. It is the most visually impressive science fiction world building since that Cameron movie. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's a tragedy to me that it's trapped in such a rote story. But there is no complaint when it comes to the battles. My complaint is that there's too much battle and not enough story, but the battles are great. I think the battles are good. I'm not giving them the high praise you guys are. I mean, I, I am with you a little bit, Arnie, that I think that this is better than how Michael Bay shot a lot of the Transformers uh, battles. I mean, even in the original Michael Bay Transformers, there was just one little scene, maybe three to five seconds of uh, one of the fights with Optimus Prime and one of the nameless Decepticons to where it was like a, as if like a helicopter was viewing it for like the evening news. And you're like, oh, okay, now that's really cool because they're in scale with the bridges and everything. But then you're right. The other 99% of the fighting was shaky cam and close up. I think this movie still did that a lot more than what you guys are, are not giving it credit for because they hide all that with the oceans and some of the storms going on. There, there are a lot of times, especially with the 3D, with it being dark and the weather and the water splashing around and the monsters going in the water and out and diving around. And I still thought there was a lot of confusing interactions between women. Is that the steel blue robot swinging or the ocean blue fish that's going through him? I mean, I, I don't think these fights are nearly as top-notch as perfect as you guys are describing them. I gotta think you stand alone not being able to tell a robot from a fish. I <laughs> thought it was pretty clear. And that's, I think, the one thing that it, Transformers can't match them on. Unfortunately, it has to be robot against robot. That's always going to be more confusing. It's much more clear when it's a lizard versus metal. I get that here, but I hear what you're saying. You're saying that you don't feel like the staging is as good. It's not heads and tails above what Bay has done. I feel like it really is. The spectacle is amazing. The action is not. And the reason why I make the distinction is because when I'm really invested in an action scene, my heart's pumping. I'm excited. What's going to happen next? I'm leaning in towards the screen. Here, I'm chasing the rabbit a lot. It is very <laughs> cool. It is spectacular. I am in awe. My eyes are wide, but my heart is not beating. I am not thrilled by any of this action. It is a very cold spectacle. The only time that I was kind of like that, Stuart, is that one time where Beckett and Moray had then walked up onto the land and fought the one creature on the land, and he walks into the battle, you know, the, the robot walks into the battle, dragging a battleship 
championship, like he's just dragging his ball bats. You know, I, yeah, I, that <laughs> that portion of beating that creature through buildings and just swinging him with a battleship. There, I got the moments like, oh, you know, this is phenomenally huge. He's just dragging a battleship and just swinging it around like a Louisville slugger. Yeah, cool moment. I always had a sense of scale with these things, especially, yeah, when Gypsy Danger starts using melee weapons. Here's a boat, or here's a shipping crate, which is like the back of a semi-truck. I'm going to grab four (laughs) of them and start bludgeoning you. The city fight is by far my favorite fight, and it's not just wonderfully staged and has the epic scale because you have buildings to compare it to. They're crashing through buildings. There's also a humor where it's got a big laugh from my audience when Gypsy Rider punches into a building and stops just shy of a Newton's cradle. You know, those little five balls that click clack back forth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh right. Yeah, that did get a response. Yeah, yeah. yeah I forgot about that moment. But I, it doesn't stick with me. I mean, I saw this movie yesterday. I can't remember a lot of moments. And that's not a good sign. It means that I was awed by what I saw, but it didn't make any impression on my head. I can't really remember much about the fights other than that they are visually stunning. And I would give some of that blame to the fact that you don't care about the people in the ship because they've never been given a reason to. I don't know what these people's hopes and dreams are. All I know is I should root against the extinction of humanity. But what I loved in this fight, and to go back to the timing, just to give the listener who may not have seen this a clue, this is an hour into a two-hour and 15-minute movie. About 65 minutes is the first time two kaiju ever attack at once. And for the rest of the film is going to be robot versus lizard with a 10-minute intermission. That could get very dull, but Del Toro does such a great job of escalation because before Gypsy Rider gets involved, you've got the Russians and the Chinese fighting this kaiju, and the kaiju spits acid. And I'm like, shit, did we know a kaiju could spit acid? (laughs) And nobody knew kaiju could spit acid. Then another kaiju fires an electromagnetic (laughs) pulse. And I'm like, oh, this is good. This is surprising. I don't know what they can do. And then finally, at the end of this fight, after two Jaegers have gone down, the Australians are alive but isolated, and it's finally down to Gypsy Rider versus this other kaiju, the kaiju sprouts wings and flies. And I'm like, oh my god, I love this! It is just constantly like, what are you going to throw at me next? This is so fun. And what do they throw at me next? Gypsy Rider has a sword. Has a Voltron sword. (laughs) That was cool. Yes, that was the moment I realized I was in Voltron. Wait, 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 it took you that long? (laughs) It did. That was the moment it clicked. That was my Eureka moment. The one I'm hoping Bay has. That was my moment of, let's go Voltron, because... It suddenly occurred to me, like you'd pointed out earlier, Jerry, that they not only have to talk, the two pilots, they actually announce their moves, just like Voltron. Fire shoulder jets! Fire soldier jets! Boom! They have the firing fist of the 1970s Japanese toys. This is a hell of a lot of fun, taking me back to a nostalgia for anime that I didn't know was in me. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. Godzilla fan gonna pipe up here. You say you didn't know they could do all of those things? I agree, but that's not a compliment to this movie. The kaiju are underserved. 
by being framed so much around the Jaegers. I mean, I do feel like most of this movie is about, isn't it cool what we can do in these robot suits? Yeah, it's all basically falls to Charlie Day to say it with his mind melds to a brain in a jar about who these other creatures are and why they're doing what they're doing. It wasn't satisfying to me. I wanted more lizard. I will say that when we get that mind meld and we see the kaiju world and their plot, again, I was taken back to Independence Day when we get on the alien mothership. It's really poorly defined. It is an enemy that exists to be an enemy. They don't have societies. They don't have parties. They don't have dances. They don't have wishes and dreams. They have an army that is coming for you, and that is all. That's all we ever see of them. They are merely a faceless attacker. That said, I mean, how much do we really know about the personal life of Godzilla? Maybe by movie 27 we knew what kind of books he liked to read and whether he was a libertarian or not. But in the first movie, Big Lizard gotta stop him. Yeah, well, that's its own retrospective. I won't get into it, but I do feel like I connect to Godzilla a lot more than I do any of these creatures here. That's unfortunate. You want to know both sides. In Rocky, you want to get to know Mr. T, even if you know he's going to lose. You want to know who your opponent is. And they're given real short shrift. And when they get these little moments, yeah, the bat wings, it was a joy to see what they could do, but it just reminded me that we haven't spent enough time to know what they're doing in the first place. I know what now playing, we often armchair quarterback rewrite these movies, but again, wouldn't it have been kind of cool if instead of Newt getting all these answers, that if this meld was two-directional and he was such a kaiju lover that he became a turncoat who would work with the kaiju, like mind meld to give them our plans and give us some more insight by having a human who could verbalize their desires more than they're coming to kill us. Yeah, I feel like something. I needed to believe he was taken prisoner, maybe. He didn't have to be a turncoat, but I wanted to see what was on the other side. I mean, we're told they don't come from space. They come from the ocean. There's a fissure. There's a crack in the tectonic plates. Okay, that begs a lot of questions. I don't feel like there was a lot of answers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, they are from out of space, right? I mean, they're using that opening in the ocean floor or whatever to travel through the galaxy. I mean, they're the Shatari, really. I mean, it's like they're taking that Battle of New York and Avengers and making it the back half of this movie. I mean, we don't know why the Shatari's here other than just to take over. And if I put a big bomb in the opening that they came from, I'll shut off the two-way door. I mean, we see it unfold here. So, I mean, there's so many things you can point to there. And, Stuart, what you just said, that's something my wife actually mentioned is because I I said to her, I was like, you know, one thing that really bugged me about the movie was I don't didn't know why the kaiju wanted Dr. Geyser. Why were they coming after him? And her immediate response was like, well, because they created that psychic link, they wanted to know what was in, in his head. They could get the human's detailed plan by grabbing him. That obviously makes sense, but the movie did nothing to give me that. Well, it actually doesn't make sense because I can't imagine the kaiju trying to get their big hands around that little head device. <laughs> <laughs> But to his point, I understand what he's saying is that, yes, they're both naked at that point. At least all of their secrets are laid bare. The enemy knows what we're doing and we know what they're doing when Charlie Day has his mind meld. So that should be a big part 
in the plot. It should be a big part in letting us know who this enemy is. And you're right, it isn't any more developed than it is in Independence Day. It isn't any more developed than it is in Avengers. I'm the Godzilla fan. This was the thing I came for. I didn't really care about the robots as much. And so I'm glad that they're cool. I'm glad that they got a sword. I'm glad that they really do have some awesome abilities. But you gotta serve both sides. I disagree. I think that if this is a Voltron movie, and it is, you serve Voltron and you don't focus so much on the Megazord. I disagree that you need to humanize giant lizards. I think you're bringing some pro-lizard bias to this movie, Stuart. I think you just are have a pro-lizard agenda that you are trying to promote at the detriment <laughs> of this film, and I'm not appreciative of that pro-lizard agenda being platformed on this podcast. I really admit it. I, I'm here <laughs> to tell you. I am much more into the monsters than I am into the machines. That's just where my natural inclination lies. I felt underserved. Hey, this is a movie review podcast. This is no place for your pro-monster propaganda. (laughs) You just keep that to yourself. I'll take it elsewhere. Maybe I'll take it to Godzilla. We'll see. But Not next year. (laughs) No, God, no. We would have to start now if we were going to actually do all the movies leading up to 2014 Godzilla. But yeah, I love the fights here, but they are as empty as an anime cartoon. What I'm enjoying from the humans is indeed Charlie Day and, yes, Hannibal Chow, who, how is that played by Ron Perlman? Well, because he liked Hannibal the Conqueror and Sachuan food. Uh-uh. I'm not going with this one. I know that Guillermo likes to indulge Ron Perlman, and sometimes it's the best thing about any movie he's got going. Certainly with Hellboy, he was the fun presence that carried that entire movie, obviously. But this Hannibal Child serves no point. I feel like it's a completely wasted character, and I feel like this performance is the equivalent of cupping your arm under your armpit and making fart jokes. Yeah, I might have laughed, but it's not sophisticated humor here. I mean, it's it's pretty dumb. I understand what you're saying, because what he is, is this, his people, they go salvage the useful parts of Kaiju, and they sell them for this, that, and the other. The only reason they're here is because Geyser needs to connect to something else. It's a questionable choice, but I like what Perlman did. Now, you can argue if the character in that black market group that Geyser had to go in the mainland to go connect with him, you can make a strong argument that that wasn't needed. But I like what Perlman did. I think Perlman's performance was good, I think. And I really liked him and Geyser in the scenes together. I didn't like it so much when he was just the, put a gun to his head, tell me what you want, get out of here. I liked a little bit more when they were being a little bit more cooperative and trying to figure it out. Let me put a point on it. It's fun to see a human as fun as Charlie Day in this movie for him to play off of because I feel like for much of the movie he's been like is this thing on (laughs) and so he finally gets somebody as game as he is and you know what I think that it works what you've got here is a war profiteer if you want to look at it from a world building perspective which obviously the creators of this film are they are building a universe that is every bit as rich and mineable as the Star Wars universe and what you've done here is and we haven't really talked about it but the Jaeger program was shut down for the wall they never said we're going to take away your Jaegers they're just not going to cut them checks and so Pentecost teams with Chow. That's how the Jaeger program is getting funded, is Chow is giving them a cut in exchange for exclusive access to these kaiju parts, which are, they cure erectile dysfunction and have phosphorus in them and everything. So 
I like it from a world building perspective of if the politicians are all in favor of the wall, this is the guy who you have to turn to. This dirty, scuzzy, illegal black market kaiju organs dealer is the one who is saving the world by writing the checks needed to repair the Jaegers. I like it from a world building perspective. I like what Robin Perlman does here. I am... A fan of Ron Perlman, I'll agree that he doesn't always work in every role. There are movies that we will be covering, they're already talked about, where I don't think he's a welcome presence or he doesn't fit in with the rest of the cast. But here, given that the only person he really plays off of is Charlie Day, I like him a lot. I like what you're saying and I agree with you. I wanted to know the common stance. I mean, think about it. If monsters are ripping up the world, chances are we're not going to be in the mix here piloting the robots or figuring out the math to get the problem solved. We're going to be the people running around, praying to them or hiding behind the wall or or whatever. I'd like to know how everyone else on the planet is dealing with this problem. And so, yeah, this black market smuggler is our best indication as to how common people have incorporated kaiju parts and kaiju themselves into their lives. I think all of that's great. I'm being very specific in attacking Ron Perlman here. I don't think he's funny. I don't think this whole mugging bit about I like gold stuff and where's my shoe and all the stuff that he does. I don't laugh once at Ron Perlman. I feel like Charlie Day's the funny one, not you. And it's just a distraction. Well, then you were probably very happy when this baby kaiju comes out and eats him. I'm Yes, I was more than cool with it. <laughs> I'm curious, though, if kaiju are clones... Why is there a baby? <laughs> a good point. Maybe the clones grow inside uh, the womb of their clones? I don't know. But yes, the baby kaiju comes out. He's he's more of a plot device than anything. Am I the only one who felt bad for the kaiju strangled on his own umbilical cord? A little, but no, you're not the only one. I'm getting. I like these. I'm inherently attracted to the lizard monsters. They're what I'm here to see. And so, yeah, it is a little sad to me that we see a baby death right here. And I'm glad that he gets a Ron Perlman snack in before he goes. I'm going to agree and disagree at the same time. I'll agree with you that in this movie, I think the blame falls at Del Toro's feet. I think he's a very talented storyteller. I really like his work. I disagree that he's done poorly in even his Hollywood films of making groups that play off each other. It's one of the things I liked about Blade 2 and the Hellboy series. But here, for a man who makes so many fantastical worlds, I felt like he was hampered in this one. Like he bit off more than he was ready to chew in a two-hour movie. It would have been great for him to be able to make Lord of the Rings and just make this a three-hour movie with a four-hour extended Blu-ray cut. But he was spending so much time world-building that it did harm the characters. And yes, I think part of that is probably the fault of the screenwriter, Travis Beecham. I mean, you mentioned he did Clash of the Titans. That's not going to be a credit to him in my book. And he's the one who came up with this whole concept. But as the rewriter, co-writer, and director, Guillermo should have been the one to rein him in. And with his other stories, he's so good at telling the human story in the midst of a fantastical situation. He should have been the one to say, what's the human story here? And let's focus on that, not let's have an hour of Rock'em Sock'em Robots. The faults, 
I will also lay at his feet in this case. Yeah, I mean, the movie's very ambitious in all that it's trying to do. Like you said, Arnie, try to keep it around two hours. But a lot of time was spent trying to build human elements, and I think it was just the wrong angles. I mean, we saw all kinds of time with Beckett and Moray trying to connect and trying to get Moray to be the partner and Pentecost saying, no, you can't go. It's, you know, I'm going to protect you and you're not experienced and no, we'll go ahead and go. And, oh, I knew it was a bad idea. That was way too much time spent on that. They could have done in this two hours and 12 minutes some of the things you guys are talking about. And I agree with you. And it's not that I think they were doing too much world building and too much rock and sock and robots. They parked their little time to do the human story. They just told the wrong one. Yeah, it is the worst part of this movie. All of this stuff, this alleged attraction between the American and the Japanese. I like it conceptually. This is a movie that draws heavily from Japanese influence and American Hollywood movie making. I do like the idea that they're partnering them literally symbolically here together as the love story. But this stuff is terrible. And the whole thing about her secret past, about being abandoned as a child, and Idris is the surrogate dad that's trying to protect her, I thought all of this was not only not moving, but belabored. I couldn't believe that they were still trying to treat this like a mystery after the two-hour mark. I mean, we got it. We got it early. Like, I just didn't feel like any of that worked. I completely agree. That needed to be cut way down, if not out. And the comic completely spoiled it. It told me who she was and what her relationship was with Elba and all of that. So I came into the movie knowing it. And so it allowed me to not sit there and wonder, but to be able to analyze the pacing of the reveal. And it's horrible. It is dragged on way too long. And even when all the characters know Raleigh has drifted with her and knows everything, he still waits another 45 minutes to tell us. Right. And these are good actors. I mean, Charlie Hunnam is good on Sons of Anarchy. And Rinko Kikuchi got an Oscar nomination for Babel. But together, they have nothing. I mean, there is no love here. I do not buy it for half a millisecond that they are two halves of the same whole. They're not good partners together. And... Again, I wonder, is Idris good in movies? He's certainly not good here trying to play the protective father dying of radiation poisoning and having nosebleed fights with Charlie Hunnam. It's just not good stuff. Oh, I like Idris in this. I think he does very well as a military commander. I think he can convey humanity with authority. I like him here. It seems like a much larger expansion of the same thing he did in 28 Days Later. But no, he's working for me very well in this role. I think Idris is doing the character well. I think, you know, they could just streamline things. I mean, I would rather have seen Moray having been the chosen pilot and they bring Beckett in just to audition him to be her partner and streamline it. Like, hey, on paper, you're pretty close, but I need to see an action. Okay, you, you, you guys are pretty good. Go. Yeah, Idris is always making these grandiose speeches. You know, they don't need to be canceling the apocalypse. They need to be canceling the love story. It ain't working. It's not good. Cut it. This was their concession that they thought that audiences that were less into the tech and the sci-fi would need a love story to anchor it. Certainly it was true of Avatar, and it was one of the best things about Avatar was that relationship between Zoe Saldana and Sam Worthington. That was good stuff. And here, it's not. Oh, God. When Raleigh says that line, I've spent so long thinking about the past, never thought about the future. 
until now. <laughs> I, I, I almost fell out of my chair. Like, what? <laughs> you mean this is a love story? I did not get that. I will say this. The one reason to keep Rinko Kikuchi in here is because the girl playing her in the flashbacks is phenomenal. It's, she gives a better performance than Rinko does because I don't know where they got this girl. I thought she was a CGI creation. I'll tell you what. When we see the flashbacks of this little girl wandering around Tokyo holding the little red shoe and crying, she is so expressive and sophisticated in her terror. I've never seen a child actress give a performance of this. I thought this was a CGI creation. I'm like, this isn't a real person. They made this happen with special effects. There's no way you can get a child to be this good and show this much trauma it's just not possible but no apparently this is a very talented little girl from japan who's already won awards her name is amana shida and i hope to see her in some horror movie or something very soon because she gives good fear yeah i like that absolutely but it still doesn't justify the no. amount of time spent with her i would have rather been spending it with you know raleigh our supposed hero the one i'm really supposed to root for because in addition to everything else i'm getting a big bit of top gun off this because raleigh's kind of the washed up one like maverick after he drops out and you got these aussies who are like Iceman, and then you've got these others who are like joker and the ones you just are in the background and so when we get to this big ending and it has to be chuck with pentecost in the australian jaeger striker with beckett and mako in gypsy danger going to drop a nuke in the rift and you get herc the father of chuck going that's my son and all these emotional lines i'm almost thinking i'm not even watching top gun but hot shots i mean these lines <laughs> are just so trite and so forced and so unearned yeah, I got Top Gun a lot, and I do feel like it's a bigger conflict in this movie. Surprisingly, I thought this was a movie about globalism and fighting a common enemy. But truly, this is about soothing America's sore ego. I mean, let's face it, Raleigh represents America, and it's running a Mech 3. You know, it's got this old analog thing. Everyone else is better. The Aussies are better. The Russians are better. The Chinese have play basketball better even. I mean, truly every other nation is excelling better than America here. I feel like a lot of lip service is paid to saying, don't count us out. At the end of the day, when there's blackouts and all of that, you're going to need our nuclear powered smarts. It truly is a surprise that so much of this conflict is laid at the feet between this snotty Aussie kid and our supposed hero. I kind of feel bad for Chuck Hansen a little bit because he doesn't go into the final battle with his dad. He goes in with Pentecost, and you know it's so contrived. Dead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he might as well be the Star Trek red shirt guy. I mean, you, oh, I'm dying with this radiation. Oh, but if you go one more time, the radiation's going to kill you. Yeah, well, I know. I'm dead anyway if I don't go. So, hey, uh, Chuck, you're not coming back, dude. <laughs> you can't possibly come back. Well, Chuck knows. I mean, he's saying goodbye to his dog. He knows. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said more goodbyes to the dog than he did to his dad, Herc. But that's okay. They've been each other's mind. They know. They got it. Yeah, because they even had that little trite conversation there, you know? The, <laughs> I didn't want to be the father who doesn't say these things. Get on with it. It's too little too late. You're paying lip service to relationships that weren't earned. Let's fight some lizards. <laughs> right, exactly. The problem isn't that they've made a simplistic movie in which we're rooting to kill 
the lizards. It's that so much of the conflicts are steered away from that and put on the soap opera garbage. That, yes, the terminally ill black guy and the guy that's been mean to our main hero are in the same ship together. I wonder if they're going to come home. Come on. This is his formula as it gets. Yeah, the only thing I can grant it is they knew they were dead, too. Right. They should have just renamed their ship. What is it called? It's Striker Eureka. <laughs> just call it the dead meat. I mean, truly. It's, it just, that's, you know, uh-uh. Well, let me tell you, going into this final battle, I knew where we were. We'd gotten the clue from Newt as to how, what had to be done. I knew Striker Eureka was dead meat. My question was Gypsy Danger, because you have here two people, both of whom have lost family because of the kaiju, and I really wondered if they would be making a kamikaze run. And to be honest, since I didn't like either one, I wasn't connected to either one, I was like, you know, if they kill themselves here at the end, that might redeem their existence. (laughs) I was really surprised, though, and it's not a big twist, but I really thought of the four going in that somehow Mako was going to be the only one that survived, especially when Raleigh ejected her and then he was going to finish up. Oh, I got to do it manually. I thought he was a goner, you know, kind of fitting that he can close a loop, kind of be with his brother, so to speak, and just kind of good closure to his quote-unquote career of ending the battle. I'm surprised they brought Raleigh back. I think it would been stronger if they hadn't. I think that they still were trying to sell a love story here. We really are supposed to hope that these two are going to survive these impossible odds, do this incredible mission, and come back from the other side to, you know, what? they've done nothing. They've had no sex. They've done nothing. She's peeked at him through her (laughs) doorway. I I really don't feel like there's any relationship here. But Guillermo says he filmed the stick fight the way he'd film their sex scene. Okay. Well, maybe he should have done both because (laughs) there's no chemistry here. I have no desire desire to see them together. This ending, it's peaked. As much as I've enjoyed these battles and as much as what I'm seeing here is still incredible, there's only so much incredible I can process. And I've checked out. The finale couldn't be colder for me. I'm checking my watch. That's what I'm looking at in this climax here. I don't care who comes back. Somebody end this. Pull the plug. I will agree that this movie peaked for me when they were fighting over Hong Kong yes. and they pull yep. out the sword and then are yep. plummeting to the earth. Yeah. And we've had another hour. Well, no, half hour. Well, okay. It felt like an hour, but you were the one watching <laughs> yeah. the clock. Yes. This ending, there's no more surprises. I said I liked the surprises when they were escalating the battle. Here, now it's two on two, and then we get a giant, giant freaking one. And I will give this movie some credit for giving me a sense of scale, even underwater. When you see the Category 5 kaiju come up, I do think that that's like a world killer. I'm impressed with the size, but that's all it has. And it's just the mechs getting beat up piece by piece, and it's feeling like a video game. I did play a lot of Mech Warrior 2 on my PC, and I'll tell you, there was one mission. It was this bitch of a mission. It was so hard, and I finished it, but I had my leg blown off. And I only had one leg, but I had to get back to my dropship, and I had to hop. And so... This is what's going through my mind because Striker Eureka loses a leg. And I'm like, time to hop. I mean, (laughs) I'm going back to video game thoughts because the fights aren't engaging. The characters aren't engaging. You're right. This climax is anticlimactic. But I have one hope. I know they're going to go through that fissure. I know we're going to see the other side. What Charlie Day has shown us has always been this blue drifting. I'm looking forward to seeing the alien world. 
Oh, that's lackluster, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I, the whole other world is underserved, and it doesn't change here in the climax, and I'm struggling to find my attention focusing on this. I have lost interest at this point. I just want it over. The one thing I was a little disappointed about it being the climactic end fight is that you have this Category 5, but you also had two Category 4s, and... That battle was far easier. Now, I know they had to, you know, blow up, you know, nuke one of the ships, you know, the one that Pentecost was in. So I, I get that was pretty extreme, but I didn't get the sense of how are they going to get out of this battle? They got two Category 4s, a Category 5, you know, last time they had two Category 4s, they almost got, all, you know, all of them almost got wiped out except for Gypsy Danger. And I felt like it was just too easy. And that was disappointing. Arnie, to your point, it was Category 5 was just for the, <gasps> factor, but it, it didn't really do anything. They didn't even bother trying to fight the Category 5 very much. They basically tackled it and knocked it back. That was all they did. And I think the Category 4s, yeah, if they wanted to nuke Hong Kong, they could have had an easier fight in Hong Kong. But yeah, it was the Category 4s that did all the damage to both of the Jaegers. Look, we've seen lots of combos at this point. There's no way to make a climax in which they're going to do better than what they did in Hong Kong. The way to up the stakes is to up the way that we feel about the characters fought in the battle. That we've seen this character that was afraid to become in the machine, our star who, ever since his brother died, didn't want to interface with the machine, and now he's coming back, and is he going to lose his lover, or is he going to lose his co-pilot? If we cared about that, it would be an exciting climax with everything they're giving us. The reason why it's so flat is, I don't care about any of this. It doesn't matter whether the apocalypse gets canceled or not, the world ending or not. I've gotten what I want out of this movie. I'm not going to get any kind of story conclusion. I they didn't build that, you know, it's just not working in that way. And so it's just more of the same. What we see here is more of what we've been seeing for two and a half hours. Yeah, you want to make me care? You kill all these Jaeger pilots and make it somehow so that Chow and Newt have to pilot a Jaeger together. <laughs> then I'm in. <laughs> that would be something, although I'm not with you on Chow. But yeah, I agree. It, you'd have to really pull a surprise. You'd have to kill someone I didn't expect or change a relationship that didn't feel so impersonal and dumb. I just feel like there's no way that I'm going to be any more invested with the movie than I already was. And time is ticking. But they get through it, and, you know, there's really nothing that happens after the fissure is sealed. No, it's astonishing how abrupt the film just ends. I'm wondering if there are additional scenes. You said that there's an hour cut. There must be a wrap-ups here of storylines and characters. I've never seen a movie in which, oh, it's dead! Da-da-da-da! I mean, but <laughs> that's what it feels like here. Yeah, we get one scene of Chow busting out of the baby carcass, but that is it. And so that is it for us. Jerry, Stuart, do you recommend Pacific Rim? Jerry. One of the things that I do admire about this movie is how it, and go with me on this one, <laughs> I like how the movie, at least the characters in the movie, portray the right amount of gravity for the situation. I mean, it was a serious tone. Unlike the Bay movies, you didn't have skids and mud flap in the back making, you know, stupid jokes and fart noises and, you know, wheelie humping things and, you know, with those type of stupid background childish humor type things. In that sense, I thought the tone of the movie was good. And quite frankly, I admired it for that. I mean, I really liked how the movie captured that. That said, unfortunately, 
I go into Transformers, I know who Optimus Prime is. This movie needs to tell me who Raleigh Beckett is. This movie needs to tell me why I care about Pentecost. This movie needs to tell me why I care about the Jaeger program and why these people are rock stars. So what I'm missing from this movie is, even though I like the tone and I think the film is shot very competently, I think all the effects are wonderful. I'm a little confused in the rainy ocean battles, but, you know, not confused that I literally can't tell who's who, but I can't really tell what they're doing. There is even some of the moves that they do that make no sense. I don't know why you pick up a kaiju and body slam them into the water when they're kind of fish-like anyway. I don't get that. So there's some choices like that. The thing is, I don't care about these people. I'm not in invested in these people. I have no heart for what happens to any of them. So even though I echo, Arnie, what you say, I hope Michael Bay gets a chance to see this and says, hey, you know what? Maybe I could take that a little bit more seriously. Maybe I could shoot that a little differently and get this more polished result. I watch this movie and think, wow, you know what? Somebody really could go do a Robotech live action movie. Voltron's not too terribly crazy when I see something like this. You could pull that off and make it look and feel like a serious attempt to tell a good story. That said, though, I don't know why I would recommend this movie to somebody. If you're just a, an effects hound, you want to see big things fighting, then hey, you'll probably enjoy seeing the fight scenes. But overall, I don't find it to be a recommendable movie. So I will give it a, a mild, you know, I'm not, I'm not beating down this movie, but I'll give it a mild, not recommend. Stuart. You know, I don't like my answer to this question. Either way, I answer it. No movie with this many groundbreaking visuals, this much wonderment, should be dismissed. It's an incredible vision. It should be celebrated. It's fantastic in its production design and the splendor by which it shows robots fighting lizards. Incredible. And yet, no movie with this much clunky dialogue or exposition-heavy storytelling should be celebrated. This is bad storytelling, and incredible engineering. How to go on this? It is a recommend for some people, for people that have really concrete ideas about what they want out of this movie being a cage match. This wins. It is that. You get a lot of spectacular battles, an unlimited supply, too much for my personal taste, quite frankly. But it's there, and I think some people are going to love this. And I wouldn't begrudge anyone that wanted to run with this movie. I'd say this. If you love the trailers, it's two and a half hours of that, and nothing more. But a recommend for me when I'm on the borderline comes down to whether I had fun or not. The answer is no. I wouldn't watch this movie again. I don't want a sequel. I didn't care about the characters. I do think I liked it more than Transformers, Jerry, any Transformers, mostly because, as you pointed out, it doesn't go into that farce, but it's just as juvenile in its own way. You could hardly call this an adult movie. I think that it can only work for you if you just want a very simplistic fight in a spectacular, elaborate fashion. A-plus on design and on pushing the medium and world-building and D-plus on storytelling and characters and science fiction. It is a mild not recommend, and I do wonder if my monster bias is, as you pointed out, Arnie, if this were about human beings saddling up dinosaurs and going to fight evil robots, maybe I would recommend it. Maybe maybe I would go for that. For me personally, it's just a disappointment that the lizards are so underserved here. So it's a mild not recommend. But uh, worth seeing. That's the strange caveat I have. It's worth seeing for the spectacle, even though it's not a very good movie. Spoil sports, both of you. This is a recommend from me. 
it has problems. Big problems in terms of character and story. And you know what? That's problems that I've called out in a lot of the Weekend of Release movies we've done this year. I've called out problems with character development in Man of Steel. Who the hell was Jenny? With Star Trek and not really developing Khan's backstory very well. I've called out a lot of summer movies this year for cheaping out on that bit. Here, yes, I do think that, again, the cutting they did, the, oh, audiences don't care about this story stuff, let's just give them more robots fighting lizards. I could have done with 15 to 30 minutes less robot action in 15 to 30 minutes more. Why the hell do I care about these characters? I can't disagree with what you're saying, either of you, in that regard. But the question is, how detrimental is it to this film? And... From a technical standpoint, I think this film is a marvel. The score, the effects, it doesn't look real. It has a hyper-realism, almost a surrealism to it. But it's an aesthetic that I can really go with in this complete CGI manner. And from a script standpoint, yes, the characters are weak, but it's efficient in that it gets in as much as it does the way it does. And these fights are spectacular. This, to me, is the pinnacle of what dumb, fun summer movies should be. I hate the turn-off-your-brain argument that I hear quite a bit. I've been hearing it a lot since Transformers, where people said, turn off your brain and enjoy it. Well, there's nothing to enjoy there, brain or brainless, in my opinion. But here, yeah, this movie, it is not great on character. A Spielberg could have hit a home run on this, absolutely, by giving us characters that we really care about and showing us more sides of this war. Then again, he also could have made War of the Worlds out of it. It could have gone either way, I guess. But what is left here is a world I enjoyed visiting with fights I enjoyed watching and characters that I didn't necessarily care so much about, but they were good in their roles and a couple of standouts in the form of two scientists. We didn't give Gottlieb the lip service he deserves with his English accent and Chow. So yeah, I really enjoyed this movie quite a bit. And I'm going to recommend it. I hope everyone goes and sees this in theaters. I hope that you enjoy what I feel a popcorn film should deliver. This delivers it. I had more fun with World War Z or Superman. This one was problematic, too problematic. But I get what you're saying. If you're going to go see it, go see it in 3Ds in theaters. I believe the bigger the experience, the more its pleasures are enhanced. You will do yourself no favors to wait for a DVD. Yeah, I mean, I imagine an IMAX 3D of this would have been something to behold. Yeah, the bigger, the better. This is a spectacular movie in terms of the word spectacle. So, but damn if we don't have a lot more summer movies coming up in the next few weeks. I mean, we're returning to our DC Hitmen series that is underway. We're going to see Idris Elba again next Tuesday with The Losers. And then we do Red and Red 2. Red 2 is in theaters this Friday. Don't forget, we're everyone's talking about the X-Men movie next year, but there's one coming th- this month as well, and once we get finished with these DC Hitmen, we're going to cover Hugh Jackman's The Wolverine as well. It's going to be in August. We're going to be a couple weeks behind its premiere, but we're going to clear that one as well. And yes, we've got even Kick-Ass. It is definitely a lot more comic book this summer. 
Yeah, and with Kick-Ass 1 being one of my favorite movies, I'm kind of hoping that that one can be the popcorn film of the summer for me. So stay with us here at Now Playing as we go to the theaters for a lot of August. But next week, The Losers. I don't know if we'll win or lose with that one. Tune in next week to find out. And in the meantime, come to our forums at nowplayingpodcast.com. Join in the discussion there and let us know if you liked Pacific Rim. And also, if you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps other listeners like yourself find our show. So, Jerry Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, where is my goddamn shoe? Enough. I've seen what I need to see. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. 2,500 tons of awesome. If you enjoy this podcast, please come to nowplayingpodcast.com where you can find hundreds of movie reviews, including all the Star Trek films, all the Superman movies, all of Marvel's Avengers films, plus Avatar, Drag Me to Hell, and many more. Took me a while to find you. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Let's do this! Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I do not need your sympathy or your admiration. All I need is your compliance. Now Playing's Pacific Rim Podcast is edited by Arnie. I'm guessing that wasn't your first choice. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Do I make myself clear? Pacific Rim is the property of Warner Brothers Pictures. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I'm a big believer in second chances. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Charlie Hunnam, Idris Elba, Ringo Kikuchi, Charlie Day, Ron Perlman, and directed by Guillermo del Toro. A tongue twister in every single one of those names. I'm impressed, Arnie. You got through. And this will be the only comparison we make of this movie, Tampire Strikes Back, probably in the rest of the podcast. <laughs> but what no, about still- when the kaiju comes out and says, Pentecost, I am your father. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Deleted scene, deleted scene. <laughs> Either that or the cavemen created the dinosaurs to go fight the monsters, just like we create robots now. <laughs> That'd be a yeah. cool story, too. Sure. Yeah, this comes from the Beast Wars fan. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, not, you're not calling me a Beast Wars fan, are you? Because we'll fight over that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to talk about Transformers here in a minute, but... Make it wide! You kind of cut out. Is, any, is everyone there? Can not hear me? Stuart? I, I I can hear you, Arnie Stewart. I can hear you as well. Stewart. Stewart? Super Stewart? You there? Oh, he's drifted. <laughs> Stewart. Stewart, stay with us. Don't chase the rabbit. Yeah, don't chase. Hey, it's, it, it's not real. It's not happening.
Beckett and Moray had then walked up onto the land and fought the one rope. <laughs> Maybe I can't tell the difference between a robot and a fish. Pentecost decides, is that his name, Pentecost? I always get that wrong. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Marshall. Striker Pentecost. Yeah. Stacker. Yeah. I'm curious, though, if kaiju are clones, why is there a baby? <laughs> a good point. Maybe the clones grow inside uh, the womb of their cloned? I don't know. I'm going to tell you my theory. That's Kalel the, the kaiju. <laughs> <laughs> Super dinosaur? Super dinosaur. He was going to be sent to Earth to save us. Oh, no. Or- the codex is in him. Uh, I think we might be mixing our uh, superhero metaphors here, but uh, regardless, yeah. The first natural birth in a species of clones? That's all I could think about. When you said, tell us if you enjoyed Pacific Rim, I was going to say, but don't tell us if you like being rimmed in the Pacific. It was probably a little too blue. The number of Pacific Rim job jokes that we've gotten is just astounding. I mean... It's a bad name. It's a bad title for this movie. They needed to call it Robot something or Mech something or they needed a different... People don't know what it is when they hear that title. 